Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at John 15 verses 9 through 17. John chapter 15, 9 through 17. That's on page 902 of the ESV Pew Bibles. Part of our ongoing series through the book of John. We're well over halfway. We've completed the book of signs. We're in the book of glory. So we're looking at John 15, 9 through 17. So let's begin at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we, we come to the next passage in the, in the book of John. And as always, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to hear and understand these words. We don't want to leave here wondering what this is about. We want to understand it, and then we want to apply it as needed to our life as we follow Christ in faith. So, Father, we trust you with the answer to this prayer, and we lift it up in Christ's name. Amen. There was a family leaving for vacation, a a mom, a dad, and two kids, and they were in the van, and they were in the driveway, and they were making sure that they had everything they needed before they left for this extended vacation, and they were just running through the checklist, and the, the wife asked the husband, did you, did you close all the windows? And he said, yes, yes, I did. And the husband asked the wife, did you lock the back door? And she said, I think so. And so she said, hold on a second. So she got out of the van and she went in and checked. Yes, the door was locked. And so she came back in and said, yes, everything's ready to go. So they, they closed the garage door. They, they pulled out of the driveway and they started heading down the road. And then all of a sudden, uh, the, the wife said, oh no, wait a minute. We forgot to turn on the outdoor lights. And so they got to the corner, and the husband turned the wheel, and they, they went around, they circled back, they came back, pulled into the driveway, opened up the garage door, she ran in, turned on the exterior lights, came back in, they closed the garage door, and said, okay, now we're ready to go. And the kids let out a little cheer, yay, we're going on vacation. So they pulled out of the driveway, they started going down the road. This time they got a couple of blocks away, 
And the wife said to her husband, did you shut the water off? And he said, no, no, I didn't shut the water off, but it's probably going to be okay. And she said, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. And there was a, a brief pause. And then she said, you know, it's just that my parents always shut their water off when they went on vacation. And her husband said, yes, and that's why we've always done it in the past, but I'm, it'll probably be okay. And they went a little further. And then she said, it's just that if something were to happen while we were gone, we're going to be gone so long. And he said, you're right, you're right. So they, they circled back, they went all the way around, pulled into the driveway, opened the garage door, he ran all the way in, shut the water off, ran back out to the van, and said, with a little edge in his voice, okay, are we all ready to go on vacation? Have we checked everything off the list? And everybody said, yes, I think we, we have. So they closed the garage door, pulled out of the driveway, and took off. This time they got as far as the interstate. And the husband said, you know what? We forgot to set the garbage out. And his wife said, leave it. It's not worth going back. It's going to stink. Let it stink. We're not going back. I think we've all been there. We, we've all at one point had to circle back and, and literally turn around and go back because we've forgotten something or we wanted to check something. There's always a reason for circling back. Otherwise, it's just wasted movement. We wouldn't circle back if there wasn't a reason. There's always a reason. And we circle back physically like that. We've all, we've all been there, but we also circle back verbally too. Maybe you've had a conversation with someone and after you're done and you're thinking about it later, you think, you know what, I, I have some questions. I, I'm not sure I understood them on, on that point. I need to circle back. Let's, let's go back. I have some follow-up questions to make sure I understand you. Or sometimes we're the ones that need to clarify ourselves. Sometimes we get done with the conversation and we think to ourselves, I'm not sure if they're hearing me. I, I want to go back and I want to make sure that I communicate a little more accurately so that I know that they know the point I was trying to get across. So we circle back. But once again, there's always a reason. Otherwise, it would just be wasted breath. In John chapter 15, 9 through 17, we are going to see Jesus circle back verbally. He's going to deliver some of the same teaching that he's delivered earlier, and really not that far before in John chapter 13, 14, 15. He's going to see, we're going to see some topics like loving one another. He's talked about that already. We're going to see him talk about choosing his disciples. He's hit that already. He's circling back. But there's one thing that Jesus circles back to more than anything else. And it is his teaching that his followers must obey his commandments. He just keeps circling back. So we're going to make our way through this passage verse by verse, and there's a lot to see here. We're going to touch on each one of those nuggets, each one of those important points that we need to see in this passage. But we're not going to go too deep. What we really are going to focus on towards the end, and in the body of the message, is why. There's always a reason for circling back. Why does Jesus keep circling back to the same teaching? If you love me, 
you will obey my commandments. So let's begin. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. We, we can't even begin to fathom or, or comprehend the internal love within the Godhead, the, the strength, the, the trueness, the, the power, um, the depth of the love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Father. We can't begin to grasp the, the completeness and the, the perfection and the, the purity of the love that the, God, that the Godhead has for each person. We, we just can't get there. This unbroken nature and, and continuing love that will never diminish. And yet, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So we need to ask, in, in what way? He's obviously making a comparison here between the, the love that the Father has for him and he has for the Father, and then the love that he has for his disciples. And while we can't begin to fully explain or comprehend the, the love that is expressed within the Godhead, and we also cannot say that the love that Christ has for his people is identical to the love within the Godhead, we can say this. The Father loves the Son completely, perfectly, and continually. So also, Jesus loves his people perfectly, completely and continually. This is one of those unchangeable rocks of assurance that we have as followers of Christ. We can build our house on this foundation, on this rock, and know if I am in Christ, then I am loved by Christ continually, perfectly, and eternally. And then he adds, abide in my love, which we have talked about means remain or stay in my love. How do we remain in Jesus' love? He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He's circling back. Here he is, circling back. He's, he's circling back to that same teaching, his followers must obey his commandments. Worded a little differently, but the same teaching Earlier he stated, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This time he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Same thing, same teaching. And then look at the second half of verse 10. 15, uh, 10 says, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. This is also circling back. John 14, 31 says, I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. What he's saying there is my love for the Father is a demonstration of the, the fact that I genuinely love the Father. So also your love for me is a visible demonstration of, of your genuine love for me. So none of this is new. He's circling back. He's circling back to that, that rubber meets the road practical test of genuine discipleship. Which tells us it's not just words. We, we can't just say the words, I love Jesus. We can't just say, I love God. It's not just a, a vague feeling that we have. It's, it's not uh, a thought that comes to our mind once in a while. It comes down to diligently seeking to know what God's word says and then reordering our life around that word. 
demonstrating a steady, regular, unwavering pattern of obedience to an application of God's word in our life. For example, Jesus said, repent and believe. Do we repent of our sin? Are we believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone for our salvation? That's one of the tests. Jesus said that no one comes to the Father except through me. Do we confess that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Do we confess that, that he alone is the way to the Father? And do we reject all other faiths and beliefs and world religions and any other so-called ways to God? That's one of the tests. Jesus taught creation. Do we believe that God created men and women or, and do we reject evolution as a lie? I hope so. That's one of Christ's commands. Jesus said his disciples are to observe all that he commanded, which means we need to embrace all his teaching. So do we hold a biblical worldview on things like human sexuality, family, marriage, church leadership, civil government, and on and on? Is scripture the standard and norm by which we measure everything else in our life and in our thinking? The family, after traveling for a day, decided to stop for a night at a hotel, and the hotel had a pool. And they got dressed, they got their swimsuits on and their, their sandals and their flip-flops and all their gear, but they also wore t-shirts down to the pool just because they didn't want to walk through the hotel with just their swimsuits on. And they got to the pool and, and mom and dad just kind of took their sandals off and sat down by the pool and put their feet in. And one of their children said, aren't you going to get in and swim with us? And dad said, no, I think we're just going to sit here and, and talk. I don't really want to get my hair wet and get water in my ears tonight. Mom said, yeah, I, I don't want to mess up all my makeup. We're just going to put our feet in. And the kids kind of looked at each other like they were crazy. They kicked off their sandals. They stripped off their shirts. They went to the deep end and they jumped in the pool and, and curled up their knees and yelled cannonballs. They went in and, and splashed into the pool. When Jesus calls us to follow him in faith, he calls us to jump into the deep end of discipleship. We cannot rightly follow Jesus by simply putting our feet in the water of discipleship. We, we cannot decide that we'd rather not get our hair wet as we follow Christ in discipleship. Saying things like, well, I like some of his moral teachings. Um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a good one. Um, be kind to strangers. I'm kind to strangers. I like that. Um, do not judge. I never judge anyone, and I don't want anyone to judge me. But I'm not so sure about those absolute statements. Or how. I don't like that. And I'm still open to different possibilities regarding the origins of, of mankind. I mean, who's to say? Who really knows? And I think, you know, things like marriage, the church may have to, to change. No. No, that's, that's not jumping in. You can believe those things. Everyone's free to believe whatever they want to believe. But do not call yourself a Christian. Don't, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're in Christ with saving faith. We have to cannonball 
into following Jesus Christ. We can't sit on the edge and just dip our feet into the water. When Jesus says, believe my commandments, he means all my commandments. Verse 11, experiencing joy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. A joyful Christian is an obedient Christian. I, I think Jesus here says that uh, in order to remain in him, obey his commandments so that his joy may be in them, Jesus experienced perfect joy from perfectly obeying his father's commands. And he wants his followers to experience that same fullness of joy as they walk in obedience to him. And, and we can all testify to the experiential truth of this statement. When we're walking in the Lord, by God's grace, obeying his commands to the best of our ability, there is joy. There is joy. There is a flowing current of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There is a, a peace there's a spiritual calmness. But when we deliberately disobey, when we give in to temptation, when we know the right and we choose the wrong, the joy is gone. The, the Holy Spirit seems distant, if not completely absent from us. Our hearts are not at peace. We experience guilt and unrest. So the path to joy is to walk in the way of obedience. We've experienced this. Verse 12, we're going to be talking about Jesus' friends. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So this is not the only commandment. When he says, this is my commandment, he doesn't mean, this is all there is to following me. Jesus is not saying, all you have to do is love people and you're good to go. That's not it. This isn't his only command. This is one of his commands. And once again, he's circling back to his previous teaching. John 15, 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. We've heard this before. John 13, 34, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Almost identical language. He's circling back. Both in chapter 13 and here, love one another means believers. He's talking about the, the love for other brothers and sisters. Um, we are to love disciples of Christ in a way that surpasses or eclipses the general love that we have for those in the world. And I think if you remember when you were here last time we talked about this, I said and explained it in this way, we're not to love those outside the church less, we're to love those inside the church more. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So this love that we have for other believers should be to the maximum limit. We, we should be loving them as far as we can love, which Jesus points out is to the point of death. I mean, if someone gives up their life for someone else, that's, that's all we can give. We can't give anything beyond our life. That's the limit. And then look at the next verse, verse 14. It starts, you are my friends. And we need to stop there. Now, the original 11 disciples may not have put this together, but we can and we must draw the connection here between 13 and 14. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. 
Jesus is about to lay his life down for his friends. Not for everyone, for his friends. When Jesus went to the cross, he did not pay for the sins of everyone who ever lived. He paid for the sins of the elect, his friends. This is the doctrine of limited atonement, also called uh, definite atonement or particular redemption. There's a couple different names for it. If you're familiar with the Reformed acronym TULIP, this is the L in TULIP, limited atonement. And it's the teaching that when Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross and made atonement for sins, he did so for the elect. Not for all people in general, but for those whom the Father had chosen and had given him to save. So, his friends. Jesus took names to the cross. Jesus took the wrath of God and laid down his life for his friends. So this is limited atonement. And then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He's circling back to that same teaching. He circled back to a couple of things. Now, when Jesus circles back, not every time there's a, there's a big overarching reason. Sometimes it just is good teaching. You've heard the, the phrase that repetition is the mother of all learning, and Jesus is an excellent teacher. So sometimes when he circles back, sometimes when we read the New Testament, like here in John, where he circles back to something he said prior, it's just that he's a good teacher. It's for didactic reasons. He, he just wants to make sure he drills it in. But I want to draw our attention to this particular commandment because he hits on it so many times. 14.15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 14.21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 14.23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 14.24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then right here, 15.14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He just keeps circling back, going around the block, around the block, in the garage, around the block, over and over again. And remember, no one circles back without a reason. And the question we wanted to answer is, why? Why does Jesus just keep circling back. Sometimes it's enjoyable to, to watch a, a movie or read a novel about spies and, and their, their intrigue, and it's usually an action, thriller, suspense type of scenario. And the reason I think a lot of people enjoy these types of novels or, or movies is because there's truth in it. Uh, we know that even though it's a, it's a work of fiction, there are real spies. There, there have been, through even in biblical times, there were spies. And of course, throughout every conflict that the world has ever seen, most often there have been spies, secret agents, people that have belonged to one political side, but they've gone over and infiltrated. And as an agent, they pretend to, to be working in and among and serving the other side. But they're really not. They're really trying to sabotage the other side. They're, they're collecting intelligence and sending it back to their superiors. Or maybe they're actually 
blowing a building up or, or maybe uh, dismantling some piece of, of technology or equipment. Whatever it is, there, there's truth in that. It's the same thing with the church. There are enemy agents, there are spies, there are infiltrators, enemy infiltrators in the church. And I don't want us to ever be so naive as to think that every single voice we hear and every single person we see and every single member of the ordained clergy and every single Christian book that comes out and every sermon that we listen to is somehow faithful and pure and, and, and composed and written and spoken by someone who's, who's serving Christ to the best of their ability and God's grace with all their heart because it's not. That's just not true. There are enemy agents within the church and they are sabotaging the church. They are promoting false teaching. They are leading people astray from Christ, astray from the gospel. They are, they are perverting the gospel. And among other things, as an enemy agent, they are teaching Christians that you can be a follower of Christ and not obey his commandments. The very thing that Jesus keeps circling back to is one of the biggest threats to the church, and it always has been, and it always will be until Christ returns. One of the biggest threats to Christ's church are these enemy agents, those who teach it and those who go along with it, this teaching that is the opposite of what he's circling back to. This teaching that you can, you can be a Christian, you can be a valid member of the church, and not obey all his commandments, not walk in the way of obedience. And these enemy agents in the church are smooth, they're slick, they are excellent communicators, they're very winsome, they have an appropriate sense of humor that is very disarming, they're very likable people. They're, they're, they present well, they look good on camera. And oftentimes these people have large churches or large ministries or lots of people following them. But they're enemy infiltrators. And they are teaching the church that you can follow Christ without obeying Christ. Because Jesus knows that his people and his church will always be tempted to, to have this teaching to, and to have this belief that it's okay to say you're in Christ and say you're a Christian and profess belief and at the same time not follow his commandments, that's the reason, that's the why Jesus keeps circling back. And it, hap it happens today, it's happening in our churches, it happens in denominations, it happens at uh, Christian conferences, it happens on blog sites, it happens in small groups, and because this teaching is so prevalent, it also happens in the hearts and minds of, of individuals. It's not hard. It's not hard to find enemy agents. They're out there. And of course, when confronted, they would deny it. And of course, that's what an enemy agent would do, right? Upon discovery by the enemy, they would deny this. No, I'm on your side. They, they, they would profess to be in Christ. They would profess to follow historic Christianity. But at the same time, 
their teaching reveals that they are not teaching historic Christianity. Uh, so they would, uh, they, they would say that they would promote this teaching. Now, of course, they wouldn't promote this teaching. They wouldn't say, I'm going to pretend to be in Christ, but I'm actually going to teach you to disobey Christ. They're not going to come out and say that. Here's, here's some of the things they would say, an enemy agent. These are things that I've actually heard or seen in print or very similar to it. The church just can't think doctrinally. She has to think pastorally and care for all people. Jesus angered the Jewish leaders because he was so accepting of all kinds of people. Shouldn't the church do the same? There are some people who do not fit into neat and tidy traditional categories. There are some people uh, that whatever the church is teaching is just not an option for them. What are they to do? Or are you going to tell someone they don't belong to Christ's church just because they are different from you? That's a good one. We have to stop drawing lines and telling people they're on the outside. I've heard that. Or the version of Christianity that the church has embraced in the past will no longer work today. We need to pivot towards a biblical Christianity that welcomes and affirms everyone. Do you hear that language? These are the types of things they're saying, but I hope you're reading between the lines. Some of that sounds good, But what they're doing is they're accusing the church of not welcoming everyone, of not accepting everyone, when in fact the church does welcome and accept all people who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The church does not accept anyone who does not repent, who does not believe in Jesus Christ, and they never should. That is the difference. The enemy agents are saying, look, let's open our doors, let's make sure we're welcoming all people. without requiring repentance, without requiring obedience to every single one of these commands. And then, of course, she tells the church that is, that is trying to stand on Christ, well, there's something wrong with you. You must be fearful, or you're, you're just put off because this is different from what you're used to. Or they might even come out and call the church a hater. What we see today is exactly why Jesus kept circling back. This is the reason. He knew it was going to be a a major threat to the church. It always has been. It It always will be. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And a chief among those commandments is to repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ. There cannot be acceptance into the visible membership of the church without repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. That's the reason why he's circling back. Verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So in order to understand this, we need to break it up into into smaller bites. Number one, no longer do I call you servants. This, this does not mean that he will never reference his followers as servants again. This does not mean that the, that the servant-master illustration no longer is valid, that we should throw that language out, that that's too hierarchical, and, and we, should, we should never talk about ourselves as servants because we're his friends, and we've been lifted up and elevated, and that language is archaic, and we should just get rid of that and, and not think of Jesus as our master. 
Well, how do we know that? Uh, first of all, we can skip down four verses and see that Jesus has no problem continuing to refer to his followers as servants and himself as master. Lord willing, we'll get to it next week. John 15, 20 says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It would seem rather odd indeed if Jesus was prohibiting this language and then four verses later he uses that language. Uh, furthermore, more than one epistle, Paul opens his letters by identifying himself as a servant of Christ. For example, Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. If Jesus wanted his followers to stop using that language, we would find it very inconsistent that Paul, the apostle, would choose to use that language in a very overt way to identify himself. And there are other verses that show the same thing. So whatever Jesus is saying here, it cannot mean that he wants us to throw this servant-master language out the door or to never think of him as a master or to never think of ourselves as servants because we are. We are his servants and he is our master. The second part says, For the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So what Jesus is doing here is he is zeroing in on one aspect of servanthood. And that aspect or characteristic is that the servant does not know what the master is doing. Now, in an, under a normal servant-master relationship, the master is under no obligation whatsoever to explain himself to his servant. He doesn't have to tell him why he's ordering him to do something. He doesn't have to tell him uh, an explanation. He doesn't have to share his plans. He doesn't have to give him a rationale. He doesn't have to discuss anything with the servant. He just commands and the servant goes and does. But Jesus says, I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So what we could say is that this aspect of servanthood, meaning the not knowing about the master's plans, that characteristic no longer applies to them. And instead, he now calls them friends because he is sharing his plans with them. He's telling them what he is going to do. He's telling them why he's doing it. He has taken what he has heard from the Father and given it to them. They're still servants. They're still followers of Christ as servants. The New Testament uses language like slaves of righteousness, slaves of God, bondservant of Christ, servant of the Lord. It's sprinkled all over the place. So we're not throwing that language out. It's that characteristic of servanthood where the slave doesn't know what the master is doing. That is gone. And in its place is the relationship of friendship, of sharing plans, of revealing, of disclosing. Uh, the apostles have been given so much revelation at this point, so much more light than anyone in redemptive history. Um, these men, now at the time of this conversation, then later after the cross, have been shown so much more revelation than any time in the history of the world up to that point. They're so much more in the know than anyone who's gone before them. 
about God, about the Trinity, about the, the nature of the Messiah's mission, uh, about bringing together Jew and Gentile into one body. I mean, think about all of the, the revelation that God has disclosed and revealed. They're so informed that they can no longer be called servants who don't know the master's plans. Instead, they're called friends. But we are still to be called servants. We're both. We're both servants and friends. We're servants because Christ still commands and we still obey. Verse 16 says, You did not choose me, but I choose, chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So context tells us that Jesus is talking about selecting them for um, apostleship and, and to go out in mission. Uh, but we have to say they're also talking about salvation. I mean, this is just the 11 left. Judas is gone. He's off to commit his act of betrayal. This is the 11. And they've not only been chosen for apostleship, but they also have been chosen for salvation. So it's both. Um, he says they are to go and bear fruit that lasts and abides. So that go language is reminiscent of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. So we've got that go language, and then we have the fruit that lasts, which suggests that we're talking about the conversion of believers that will last eternally. So Christ is calling them to go out on mission, to, to make disciples. And then he says, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He's circling it back again. We've heard this before, John 14, 13 and 14, John 15, 7, both of those places, if you've been with us the last couple of, of weeks, you've heard this before, him talking about ask whatever you want in prayer. So he's circling back. This is one of those didactic moments. This is where he's just drilling it in. This is, this is just good teaching, good practice. And of course, what he's saying is, as you go out of ministry, as you move forward as my apostles sent by me, commissioned by me to write the New Testament, to, to uh, plant churches. As you go forth, ask for whatever you want. It's going to be given to you. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. We see the apostles receiving direct and immediate answers to prayer. And of course, the application for us here is not that we should expect direct and immediate answers to every prayer we make, but that as we go forward doing the will of God, completing the mission of God, God will answer prayers that glorify him and are in accordance with his will. Verse 17 forms kind of a bookend. It says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. If you look back at verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. So this kind of puts these, an inclusio is what it's called. It's like bookends on the end of a passage, and it marks the end of this, this section. Verse 18, he's going to pick up on the world and persecution. So if we look at this passage, this circling back passage, we can think of this section as, as Jesus' words to his chosen apostles. He's preparing them. He's equipping them to move out. He's getting them ready for what's coming next after the cross. He's saying, you need to be doing all these things. I'm sending you out. Pray for whatever you want. Remain in me. I'm sending you. I'm equipping you. And he keeps circling back to this teaching about if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because he knows that as they go out and do these things, this is, this is square one. He's saying, if you do not remain in me, if you do not keep my commandments, 
then you're not one of my disciples. And no matter what activity you're engaging in, no matter how important you think you are, no matter, no matter how noble your purpose you think it is, if you are not in me, then all that church planting and teaching and everything is not being done in Christ. It's not valid. You've got to remain in me. Everything else is just activity. You're just busying yourself. Because if you're not in Christ, then that's not Christ's work, and you're not working in, in his church. So as, as a final application for us, on a large scale, the church is, is always faced the temptation. It's going to be facing an increasing temptation to go along with the world. We're going to see an increased temptation to go along with this, uh, this infiltrating agent kind of teaching where people are in the church claiming to be in Christ, but at the same time saying, you don't really have to follow all the commandments of Jesus Christ. Some of them can be tweaked or ignored. So the application for the church broadly is this. Remain in Christ, obey his commandments. Because even if you call yourself a Christian, even if you call yourself a pastor or a leader of Christ's church, no matter what you're doing, all that activity, no matter how many followers you have, if you're doing that and you're not obeying Christ's commands, then you're not part of Christ's church. That's not a valid ministry. You're not doing it to his honor and to his glory. He's saying, if, if that's the brand of Christianity that you want to follow, you need to understand that you're, you're not a Christian and that's not a Christian church. So, so for us broadly, it means to approach teaching, whether it be um, sermons or podcasts or books that we read or, or downloads or YouTube, whatever, wherever it is, because we understand that this isn't the only place we're getting teaching. I hope we're, I hope we're drinking in other Christian teaching behind, besides Sunday morning. Sunday morning is important, but there sh we should be augmenting that with anything we can get our hands on. The takeaway is be discerning about what cisterns you're drinking from because they're not all clean water. There are enemy agents out there. Also, as individuals, I think as, as followers of Christ, the application is we need to make sure that we're not just getting our feet wet. We need to be sure that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're, we're not trying to keep maybe just one little part of our body above water while we kind of dog paddle around as we follow Christ. We need to go all the way under. It's all or nothing. We've got to immerse ourselves in Christ and in his teaching. And then finally, for those that may be here that aren't in Christ, maybe you've been under some bad teaching in the past. Maybe you've sat under an enemy agent, and, and maybe they've given you false teaching, bad teaching. Maybe you've been told to quietly ignore the, those hard commands of Christ and the, the weight and force of, of Jesus' commandments, and instead you've been encouraged to focus on Jesus' love and compassion. Maybe you've been told that you don't need to move or change or deny yourself because Jesus loves you just the way you are and there's no need to deny anything about who you are. The truth is, Jesus loves you, but he does call you to deny yourself. Uh, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's pretty clear. 
whatever is sinful in our life, he calls us to repent of it. Even if that thing is an integral part of who we are. Even if we think whatever we're, we're discussing or whatever we have in mind is, is part of our identity. And it is just woven in the fabric of, of who we are as people. If it's sinful, it has to go. It has to go. God's grace and forgiveness is for everyone, all kinds of people everywhere, who repent and believe. We cannot drop that commandment. We cannot drop that requirement. That's why Jesus keeps circling back to that commandment. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is repetition in your word. That Jesus drilled down deeply on this teaching. And we recognize that it, it is so needful today. We recognize that the church, as much as we would like it to be, is not made up of 100% genuine believers. There are enemy agents and there is false teaching. So Father, we ask that we would cling tightly to the truth, to Christ, that we would not uh, go along with that teaching and, and that we would examine our own lives and make sure that we are completely immersed in following all of Christ's commandments by the grace of God. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.